I do want to let you know that uh, the Hairstons, they're watching online. They're not here today. They were having some car trouble issues. And that means we'd been announcing that Jack was restarting his Digging Deeper class that would meet this afternoon. That's postponed until next Sunday. Next Sunday, he'll begin the Digging Deeper class, Lord willing. Uh, So there is that. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We continue to take a peek at the seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor. And we make it today to Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, talking about the church in Philadelphia. Not that Philadelphia, the other one over in Asia Minor in the first century. Revelation 3, let's read our text beginning in verse 7, and we'll read to verse 13. The Bible says, and these are, of course, the words of Jesus, and to the church, excuse me, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Those who dwell on the earth, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can see clearly what your word says, and really that we might see you clearly for who you are. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I mean, we kind of know what it's like to live on shaky ground to some degree, don't we? I mean, we've, the Central Valley is not exactly the San Andreas Fault, but I mean, it was, was it Thursday? When, did you feel the earthquake this last Thursday? I didn't feel it. I was driving. Buddy was driving as well. He didn't feel it. I got home. I was coming home from the gym. I got home. And the family was all abuzz because the TV had done this. Ready? It had done this. That was it. That was the whole earthquake for us, right? I've I've grown up. I grew up in the Central Valley. Lived here nearly my whole life. I mean, we did live out of state for a number of years. Kim and I did. Texas, Kansas, Arizona. And I I can't really recall a time when I can remember feeling an earthquake. 
And if it was, it was minimal, right? I can't even remember it. But it's always funny to, to, to talk with people who don't live in California, not from California. When we lived out of state, we would always get people who lived in Tornado Alley, and they were always like, oh, earthquakes, right? Earthquakes in California, ooh, right? Of course, we always live under the, the, the threat, the reminder of the big one. And so, like, we're all sitting on oceanfront property because when the big one hits, right, the whole coast is going to fall off into whatever and all that. But I mention this because Philadelphia, the church to whom Jesus is speaking, the church that was in Asia Minor, they knew a thing or two about earthquakes and not the, right, type of earthquakes. Philadelphia was actually built on a fault line. And so they had a lot of earthquakes. The people, when the earthquake would hit, they would run outside wherever they were, flee out of the dwelling place into a place of safety, and every tremor, that's what it was. That was the thinking. There's nothing permanent. Everything's shaky. And so Jesus knows that. He knows Philadelphia, the city. And he keys in on that. This is typical in these, uh, these letters that Jesus writes to these churches. He keys, on, keys in on these historical, geographical features. And so when Jesus promises, you're not going to have to run out. Ah, oh, the Philadelphian Christian would understand. Oh, wow. I, I, I'm going to be on unshakable ground. When Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar that means you're not moving. Oh, I'm going to be unshakable. Jesus is promising to make these Christians unshakable. What else do we know about Philadelphia, the city in the first century Asia Minor? It was known as the Gateway of the East. That's what it was called. It was built not only on a fault line, but also on a volcano, or at least near a volcano. And that meant they had pretty rich soil. They would grow a lot of grapes. And again, because it was built on this fault line, a lot of earthquakes, and Jesus focuses in on that. And when Jesus makes these promises, the Philadelphian Christian, their ears would perk up and hear, that's great. That's wonderful. Again, Jesus is telling them, I will make you unshakable. Another historical fact that Jesus seems to key in on here is that the city of Philadelphia, the city itself, had been it had undergone some changes, some name changes. In A.D. 17, the name of the city was changed to Neo Caesarea. A short time after that, it was changed again to Flavia. And then a short time after that, it was changed back to Philadelphia. Can you imagine? And so when Jesus starts talking about, I'm going to give you a new name, even my own name. And the idea is, if Jesus gives you a name, that doesn't change. That's your name. Again, Jesus, master communicator, focusing on these. And, of course, it's because, notice the description here in verse 7. These are the words of the Holy One. That's how Jesus begins this introduction. The church in Philadelphia, the Holy One. This is the same language that's used of God in the Old Testament. It's... In several places, I'll just give you one, Isaiah 41 
and verse 14. Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, O men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Notice all caps, capital L-O-R-D. That's the name of God, Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So this is a title exclusive to Yahweh, the one true and only God. And Jesus says, oh yeah, that's who I am. Once again, we've seen it again and again, and we see it once again. Jesus is identifying himself with God. Christ is God, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. He's not only the Holy One, he's also the True One. The True One, he says. The Holy One, these are the words of the Holy One and the True One. And that means these words are true words. Also, there's a bit here about uh, true. It could also be understood as real. Jesus is the real one. And I think about that because there have been lots of people throughout history who have said Jesus, he never existed. There never was a man of history named Jesus. That simply does not square with the historical facts as we have them. Not to mention, try telling that to the thousands of people who saw Jesus. Try telling that to the hundreds of people that he healed. Jesus was, if nothing else, a real person of history. Of course, we know him as more. He identifies himself as more, the Holy One, the True One. And by the way, since Christ is the Holy and True One, Christ expects his church to value holiness and truth. Without holiness, you will not see the Lord. Without truth, you cannot know the Lord. And so we as the church, need to be people who pursue holiness. We need to pursue, with all that is within us, truth. The Holy One wants holy ones, saints. The True One wants lovers of truth. That is what we need to be, brothers and sisters. People who pursue holiness and truth. One more thing before we move on. If you turn just a page or two to Revelation 6. In verse 10, the people that are under the altar, these are martyrs for their faith. One of the things that they cry out, they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, you need that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, for something I'm going to talk about in a minute. But notice, O Sovereign Lord, they are addressing God, and they call Him holy and true. So once again, the emphasis on the holy and true one is that Jesus is God. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus is not God. He identifies Himself in no uncertain terms as the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. We go back to 3, verse 7. Jesus further identifies himself as the one who has the key of David. Keys are typically a symbol of authority in the book of Revelation. That he has the key of David is that Jesus has authority to allow entrance into the throne of David. That is the New Jerusalem. The throne of David situated in the New Jerusalem. I invite you, write it down, look it up later, Isaiah 22 verses 20 through 22, where it seems this phrase, key of David, is being uh, repurposed for Jesus in the first century. 
Someone has said that the, the key to unlocking the 66th book of the Bible is the other 65 books of the Bible, and I think that's right. John, Christ, heirs to the rich prophetic heritage, dip back again and again into that, those prophecies, and they will repurpose them and reutilize them in order to communicate truth. And that seems to be what Jesus is doing here. He's got the key of David, and notice, who opens, and no one will shut. When Jesus opens a door, you don't have to worry about someone coming along later and closing it. Who shuts, and no one opens. He will repeat this in the next verse. I have set before you an open door. No one is able to shut it. What is this open door business? Some say it's uh, kingdom concepts, that Jesus is the one who controls entrance into the kingdom. That's true. But also, this book of Revelation deals a lot with two things, judgment and salvation. And often those two things are intertwined, judgment with salvation, or salvation even through judgment is another way you can think about it, which, by the way, are twin concepts that go along with one another again and again in Scripture. One of the key examples of this would be the Exodus, where God saves a people out of Egypt by judging Pharaoh and the people of Egypt with the ten plagues and then the cross and the Red Sea and all that. So what does it mean here for Jesus? Well, he's the one who opens the door of salvation, and no one can shut that door. But also, when he closes the door of salvation, all that remains is judgment. Access to God, in other words, is through Christ alone, no other. This is very significant. Because when we think about, again, the words of Jesus, no one is able to shut it. It's a universal negative, no one, coupled with this idea of ability, is able to shut that when Jesus opens the door, no one can shut it. He's the only one who can do that. We've seen him begin in the same way he does with the Philadelphians here in verse 8. I know your works. Jesus is the all-knowing one. That's what it means to be God. Even God, the Son, the second person of the Godhead. I know your works. They're good works. Great works. He goes on, he says, I, I know you only have a little power, but you've kept my word. You've held on to it. Not turn loose of it. Turn loose of it. You've not denied my name. Not a strong church, it would seem. Just little power, right? Maybe it could be that they're small in number. Not a lot of them. But they have kept Jesus' word. That is a true mark of a true church. Not only that you receive the Word of God, but that you keep the Word of God. That you put it into practice. We would call that obedience. And that's what Jesus is commending these Christians for. You have kept my Word. You have not denied my name. Even in the face of persecution, they've not denied the name of Christ. And even though they have little power, there's a, an old hymn. We don't have it in our songbook. But it's little as much if God is in it. And that's the case here. Even a little church is a lot because Christ is with it. 
Let me circle back to this open door business. It could be having to do with kingdom stuff, judgment and salvation stuff. One way it's used again and again in the New Testament is in reference to an open door for evangelism, outreach, and, and good ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let me just give you one example of this. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9, Paul says that he's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, verse 8, for, let me tell you why, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So even though there's a lot of enemies against Paul, I still have this wide open door for good and effective ministry and evangelism. You can also see 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, Colossians 4, verse 3, Acts 14, verse 27. They all communicate the same thing. That often an open door in the New Testament has to do with mission opportunities. And so it could be Jesus saying, I've got an open door for you. Philadelphia, you have a lot of ministry and mission opportunities before you. Even though you're small, I've, I've, Jesus is saying, I've opened the door wide open. No one is able to shut it. And that tells us that in order for missions and for evangelism, evangelism to take place, to be effective, the Lord is the one who has to open the door. Someone has said a long time ago, you can't push a string, right? And I believe that's applicable here. The, the Lord is sovereign over missions. You can't force things. You can't force them. You can't beat someone over the head with Scripture and expect them to become a Christian. You can't force it. And here's Jesus saying that he is sovereign over missions, assuming this open door is a missions or evangelistic opportunity. Jesus is the one who is sovereign over that. Again and again, that's what we see with this open door business. When it comes to an open door that no one can shut, or a shut door no one can open, Jesus is emphasizing his sovereignty. This is the sovereignty of Christ. And so behold, verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. We've come across the synagogue of Satan idea before, back in chapter 2 and verse 9. Seems to be a, a synagogue of, of Jewish people who are claiming to be the people of God, and yet their characteristics are those of the devil, of Satan. And of course, he is the accuser, he is the slanderer. That may be what these, uh, this synagogue is all about. They're accusing these Christians of certain things that aren't true. They're slandering these Christians, running them down. And so Jesus says, look, I'm gonna, I will make them. I will cause them. Another emphasis on Christ's sovereignty. I will cause these enemies of my church to come before my church and bow down before them. The kowtow of this synagogue of Satan will be a manifestation of their learning. They will learn uh, that I have loved you, that Jesus loves his church. Now, that's a good place to say amen, because not only did he love the church in Philadelphia, brothers and sisters, he loves his church today. He loves his church. And the enemies in the first century would learn it. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't call on his church in order to somehow vindicate themselves. Take up the sword. Get out there and... 
and do your work and, and you'll vindicate yourself. Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I will. You don't have to go to battle, in other words. I will fight the war for you. That's what Jesus does. The battle truly does belong to the Lord. And again, these enemies will recognize that the church is the Messiah's beloved bride. Verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now I mentioned, we looked at 6 verse 10, I mentioned keep that phrase in mind because Jesus uses it right here. And this phrase is a phrase that's used throughout Revelation in order to talk about those who are the disobedient inhabitants of the world. It's to talk about the the disobedient, the wicked, the unbelievers in the world. And so those who dwell on the earth are the ones who are going to come under the wrath of God when it comes upon the world. The world here, by the way, a different word that's usually used for world in the New Testament, it actually has to do with and points to the inhabitants of the world, not just the whole created order, in other words, but specifically the inhabitants of the world. And so here is Jesus He's drawing a contrast between his people who are obedient, who he will protect and keep from that hour of trial that's coming on the world, contrasting them with those who dwell on the earth, who are disobedient, who don't believe him, who don't believe his word. There's the contrast. And so Jesus has said, you have kept my word about patient endurance. Again, there seems to have been some kind of persecution. We don't have all the details of it, but... They had some persecution, and Jesus is saying, it's going to get worse. There's going to be even more persecution that's going to engulf the whole world. What's a Christian to do? Jesus tells them, you've got to trust Christ, trust Him, and understand that He will keep them from it. He will protect His church. It should be of comfort to know that when you're walking through the fire, Christ has his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the clock. We saw this earlier with the 10 days business. Which church was that? Was that Sardis or Smyrna or Pergamum, was it? One of the churches that had 10 days of trial that were going to come upon them. 10 days, no more, no less. Again, Christ, when we're going through the furnace of trial, he has his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the clock. It will not be more then he permits. He says, I am coming soon. Verse 11. I am coming soon. When? 2,000 years later? What would that have meant to these Christians in the first century? Who are all dead now, by the way, right? No, not 2,000 years later. Soon, as it's used in Revelation, as it's used throughout all of the New Testament, soon means soon. <laughs> it means in a little bit, in other words. Suppose I were to say, I don't know, Halloween is coming soon. I could even use Christmas is coming soon, right? I mean, you understand that means it's going to come in a little bit, just a few short months away, right? You don't have to wait for years and years, in other words, for this holiday to arrive. In a similar way, when it comes to this coming of Christ that he's talking about here for these Christians in Asia Minor, I am com- coming soon. This is the judgment of Christ in 
history upon his enemies. And you get this again and again. You need to make a differentiation, and hopefully you do, and think in categories when it comes to the historical comings of God in time and space upon nations and enemies. You see it again and again, whether it's Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, versus the final or second coming when he wraps up all of time and judgment and uh, final rewards and then the eternal state and all that. Those are two different things. So when Jesus says here, I am coming soon, he's talking about the former, not the latter. He's talking about when he comes in judgment upon his enemies. So what are these Christians to do? What are any Christians to do in light of the historical reality of coming judgment upon the enemies of Christ? Well, you have his word, don't you? Hold fast what you have. We've talked about this. What you receive, we saw uh, last week when we talked about Sardis. What you have and what you've received is the apostolic word. And so since you have that, hold on to it. And they have been. Keep on holding on to it. Don't turn loose of that. Continue to hold on to it. By the way, hold fast. This is the only command that Christ gives the church in Philadelphia. Did you catch? There was no, there was no condemnation. We've seen, uh, out, of, out of these churches, we've seen several of them that Christ says, I have this against you, Ephesus. Sardis, right? We've seen this where it's Christ, it's God versus his church. Christ against even his own bride. I have this against you. You don't have that with Philadelphia. The only thing you have, again, this, the only command is hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see, when you hold fast to the word of Christ, you don't lose your crown. And, and the crown that's being spoken of here, this is the victor's crown. It's imperishable. It doesn't fade away. Otherwise, if you do turn loose of it, you stop being my church. Well, the, just as the reward is very real, so also the loss of the reward is very real. Don't turn loose of it. Don't forfeit your crown, Jesus is saying. To the one who conquers, your translation may say overcomes. That's good too. The one who conquers or overcomes. What is, what is overcoming? What does conquering mean in the context of the church in Philadelphia? Holding fast to the word of God. That's what it's all about. That's what we are to do, is to hold fast to the Word of God. Well, the one who does that, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We've already talked about that's That's immovable. That's unshakable. That's permanency. Even though the whole ground around you is giving way, Christ says, I will make you immovable. Even in the city of Philadelphia, you better believe it. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, Put on your thinking cap, and I, I need you to remember several weeks ago when we were doing the, the series on the church. What is the church? Why does the church exist? We looked at three different ways in which the church is spoken of, three different images that, that are used to communicate the church. There's the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple, the Holy Spirit. Ah, oh, here it shows up again, the temple. A temple that offers living sacrifices to God. That's what the church is. And so I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will not be moved. Further, never shall he go out of it. Remember, they would flee out of the dwelling places, out of the buildings, out into the open air to whenever the earthquake hit. Jesus says, not anymore. You will not run scared. You will not run for your life. You will be secure. Your life is secure in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ, Paul says 
in Colossians 3 and verse 1. I will write on him the name of my God. Remember we talked about Philadelphia and the, the names? The name change here, there, all these different names. Now you're going to be called this. Now you're going to be called that. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a name, the name of my God. The name of the city of my God, even my own name. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm persuaded, again, it's, it's a singular name. This one name, what would that be? How about Christian? How about beloved? I mean, it doesn't specifically specify, but uh, my own name seems to point in the direction of, you bear the name of Christ. You are Christ. And don't miss this. Did you notice? Temple of my God. Name of my God. Name of the city of my God. And the one, the city that comes down from my God out of heaven. My God. Here's Jesus. Further making distinction between the Father and the Son. You see it all throughout his life and his ministry. That they are two separate persons of the Godhead. And so, here is Jesus. You see at once both his willing submission to his Father. But also you see his sovereignty the sovereignty of the Son, in writing His own name at once. Both of those ideas are contained here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up. We've talked about that's what that means. you got to hear. So what does it mean for us? We've, we've kind of wove some application in and out as we've gone. As I think about this church in Philadelphia, we... They knew about earthquakes. We know a thing about it, right? One of the things that people do after an earthquake is they often ask, well, how do we, how do we rebuild so that in the future we're better prepared for when the ground starts shaking? I'm persuaded that is what the church needs to do today. We need to ask the good, although sometimes difficult, questions of why we do what we do. Someone ought to write a book, Start With Why. Oh yeah, someone did, Simon Sinek. Start with why. Why do we do what we do? This is why when we started coming back this last time, the re-re-reopening, I forget now, but when we started coming back, that's why I started with that series on what is the church and why does the church exist? And we saw from Scripture that the church is the fulfillment of the eternal purpose of God. The church is the people of God called by the gospel in time and space, existing to do good works, even the works that God has prepared beforehand in advance that we should walk in them. The church is the family of the Father, purchased by the blood of the Son. The atonement accomplished, applied by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that, the Trinitarian nature of the church. The people of God, body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit, and all that. And so when Jesus says here, back in verse 8, I know your works. Of course he does. Of course he knows our works. He's the one who prepared them beforehand, in advance, that we should walk in them in the first place. So of course he knows our work. And that open door business. I've, I've opened a door. No one is able to shut it. Who opened it in the first place? Yeah. 
And I believe this is applicable to us today. What is the open door that no one is able to shut, the open door that Christ has opened for the Davis Park Church of Christ? What is the open door that we have as a congregation? We just experienced a shakeup. That's what the global pandemic and all the shutdowns and everything, that's what that was. It was a shakeup. And as we come out of this, and as we come back, it is imperative that we identify the open door of ministry, the open door of evangelism, all of these, the open door of opportunities for good work in the name of Christ. What is that door? And it's going to take work on our part to identify it. May I suggest, and I've talked about it before, that one door that seems to be open and that a lot of the church growth guru guys are talking about, Tom Rainier, he's got it in his book. Uh, uh, what's the church that he just published about coming out of the pandemic? Uh, anyway. Global pandemic, something. Anyway, Tom Rainier, church growth guru guy. One of the open doors he talks about, and it was happening even before the pandemic, is how local neighborhood churches are reconnecting with the neighborhood around them. And I've, I've, often the name, the name of the church, reflects that specific neighborhood. I don't know, something like the Davis Park Church of Christ. That's an identifying marker. That's where we are. We have our neighborhood surrounding us. And so, again, one open door that seems to be available to us is reconnecting with our surrounding neighborhood. How do we do that coming out of this global pandemic? That's what we need to work on identifying, brothers and sisters. I said it before, that the three scariest words that a leader can say is, I don't know. But I do also believe in, and if I didn't emphasize this before, let me emphasize it now. I do believe in the collective wisdom of the body. I believe in our leaders, the elders. But I also believe in the collective wisdom of the body, the church. That we as the Holy Spirit indwelt body have access to all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. And therefore, brothers and sisters, let us put our sanctified minds to work in order to not only identify the open door, that's one step, but then you actually have to walk through that door. What good is it if all you do is say, eh, there it is, but then you don't walk through it? Just like Philadelphia, I'm persuaded there is an open door that no one is able to shut and it is incumbent upon Christ's church to identify it. Let's commit this to prayer. The only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Fill us, O oh filler, with your fullness. We need Holy Spirit wisdom to know the times, to know what the church should do. Enable us, Father, to identify the open door that is placed before us. I'm persuaded Philadelphia 
church in Philadelphia, they could identify it, and they did help us, Father, too, in a similar way. Identify and walk through the door that you have placed before us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Assuming that the when, when Christ talks about the one who opens, no one can shut, the one who shuts, no one can open. Assuming that that initial identifier is about Christ, the sovereign Lord, and his role in opening doors of salvation, but then closing doors for judgment. My friend, the door is open for you. The door is open. Today is the day of salvation. And if you are willing to come to the Lord God, you will find Him a willing Savior. In a moment, Monty's going to lead us in. It's actually 911. He was telling me that before uh, worship began. Right? We call 911 when we're in physical danger, physical harm. Spiritually, we sing 911 when we need spiritual help. The help that only God can give us. We sing 911 when we are in need of the salvation that only God can provide. And what does it mean? It means, just as we're going to sing in a moment, bringing Christ our broken life. So marred by sin. He will create anew and make whole again. He's the only one who can do that. My friend, if you have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting, turning away from sin, confessing Him as Lord, and submitting yourself to being baptized, immersed in water to have all your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. In a moment when Monty leads us, that'll be your opportunity to come forward and express how you desire to do that. Many of us, most of us, we've done that. And we are about to come to the table in just a few minutes. Come to the table of our Lord. Commune with Christ. Eat of the emblems, the bread, the fruit of the vine, which represent the body and the blood, respectively, of our Lord. And as I mentioned, He is the Holy One. What in your life, my brother, my sister, what, what pocket, what corner are you, are you holding on to and refusing to relinquish? You know when we sing here in just a moment. That's your opportunity to unburden yourself, to lay that before the throne of Christ and allow Him to wash away, to forgive, and allow Him to change and to transform you at the table. We need to be prepared for that. And when we stand and sing and when Monty leads us, that'll be your opportunity to come forward and express how you desire to allow Christ to handle your life. Maybe there's some other burden weighing upon your heart uh, this morning, something unrelated to what we talked about, but it's weighing upon you, and you want the prayers and the help that come from God that as your brothers and sisters lift you up in prayer, you know, again, when Monty leads, that's your opportunity to come forward and express those things. We'll surround you with love and lift you up in prayer. The lesson is yours. The invitation is open. Won't you come right now while we stand and as we sing?